we'll make a start. Um, we've got an hour, and um, we, we may have a few people needing to leave early, including some of our panel. <laughs> Okay, um, so as I'm going to be very brief. I'm Nicola Wright, I'm Director of the Library Services at LSE, and I just really want to uh, welcome our guests, um, Sarah Gavron, who directed the film, uh, Faye Ward, the producer, and Elizabeth Crawford, who's the historical consultant and friend of the Women's Library. <laughs> um, so thank you all very much for coming. You can see there's enormous interest in this, so we're, we're really pleased that you're able to make it. Um, I think like most people here, I've seen the, and admired the film. I enjoyed it very much. I, I thought it was a very moving film. But as a librarian, my thoughts immediately were turning to the collections, um, some of which, you know, we have images from the collections here. And I think the film is a, a really good example of how collections and items kind of bear witness to people's lives. They tell stories about people's lives. And it's an enormous privilege for us at LSE to be custodians of the Women's Library collection. Um, all of the um, items that you see here and many of the, the stories which relate to items from the collections, from the film, are all available on the LSE's digital library, so you can have a look at those online. And also, the Women's Library at LSE is open to everybody, um, so please do come and visit. You know, come, you know, let this film inspire you and come and visit, come and look at our exhibition, come and visit the library and see some of these items firsthand. You'll be most welcome. So, without further ado, I will hand you over. Thank you, Elizabeth, and we'll make a start. Thanks. And the very first question I'll put is to the audience to see how many of you have actually seen the film already. Oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> we won't have to convert too many then. <laughs> but perhaps, first of all, I'll tell, <laughs> tell Sarah and Faye, uh, ask Sarah and Faye if they would tell you, um, you know, just very briefly, a resume of the, of the story of the film for those that haven't seen it yet. Yes, yeah, so for those who haven't seen it, it's the story of a um, it's London suffragette movement um, of Maud Watts, played by Kerry Mulligan, and her cohorts, Helena Bonham Carter's character and Anne-Marie Duff. Um, they work, Maud works in a laundry, and she gets drawn into the suffragette movement, and we follow her journey towards activism. And there's also a police character, you all know this, Brendan Gleeson, who's um, pursuing the women, tracking them down. They encounter Emmeline Pankhurst in one sequence, played by Meryl Streep. And Maud um, comes at this huge personal cost to her family. She's married to Sonny and got a little boy, George. I won't spoil what happens. I won't tell you what happens at the end either. <laughs> Let's go and see it if you haven't seen it. Um. Anyway, I, I mean... Set in 1912 to 1913, yeah. And, I, I mean, although I'm very close to the uh, women's suffrage movement, I did think it was a very good film. And what particularly uh, pleased me was that it showed why women did want the vote. I mean, it wasn't just uh, um, an abstract uh, equality uh, issue. Um, women, just then as now, um, were suffered from low pay, poor working conditions... Um, there was the, what we now call the gender pay gap and then there was also police surveillance and child abuse I mean what more topical uh, subjects could there be and they're all dealt in the film in the arc of the story without being it, it didn't look as though um, they were just put in they come out of the story and uh, it showed really why women did need the vote 
And uh, so I thought, first of all, I'd ask uh, Sarah and Faye, why did you think you would want to make a film about the suffragette movement? Well, it seemed astounding to us that no one had ever told this story on the big screen and that it was so little, it wasn't widely known. I wasn't taught it at school. Should we do a show of hands of who was taught it at school? Kind of interesting. They see the younger, some people, some of the older. Yeah, but not, not that many, yeah. Um, you weren't taught it, no, were you? I wasn't taught it. Alison Owen, actually, the other producer, she was, when she, wasn't she? Yeah, so it seemed to depend um, on who your I history wasn't. teacher was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then people only seem to know, you know, it's the, the um, Mary Poppins version of it is the most widely known version. And actually, I did a Q&A, we'd just been in America, and I met Richard Sherman, who wrote the Mary Poppins, Mrs. Banks song. And he came up and said, I'm so sorry that I made her so ridiculous. Had I seen this film before I wrote that song... <laughs> I would have understood it. Yeah. <laughs> it's very sweet. But so we felt compelled, um, and really it was the story that was lesser known that we wanted to tell. It was the story of particularly the working women who are often more marginalised than even women from history, and all that they went through, all they endured, the sacrifices they made, what they faced at the hands of the police, the lengths they were prepared to go to. We felt that was an important story, and we also felt, as Elizabeth has set out, it was a timely story. It had many resonances. What, what were the kind of uh, uh, sources that you used when you first got the idea of dealing with the suffrage movement? Well, the Women's well, Library was the very first yeah. place, very first stop-off. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we sort of... The movie's taken... I forget if you said this just then, but um, <laughs> we've been making this film for about six years, and Sarah's been trying to make the film for about... had the idea for about ten years, and, of course, suffragettes... It's been a hundred years <laughs> um, for them wanting to make this film. And... Um, you know, when we fell upon the idea of making the film, like Sarah said, we, we weren't educated per se in, in it. We just sort of knew the peripheral of suffragettes, but we could feel the importance of it. But it wasn't until we dove really deep and we went to the Women's Library, we basically sourced as many places and as many collections as possible to find those stories that maybe the masses don't know about the suffragettes and to get under the real heart of who all these women were. You know, what was interesting at the very beginning, of course, is the debate of do we make a movie about the Pankhursts? And actually, they're obviously they're some of the most famous suffragettes. But what that does in drama terms is it really restricts you to tell a story because you've got to be very literal about what their life was and how it was conveyed. And I think for us, the major reason for making this film is to, one, as Sarah said, to take the shackles of what the suffragettes were, so for people to believe and understand the political movement and, you know, the war they were in. And actually, the most importantly, for this movie to travel so audience can watch it and be inspired and understand what they did. And for the film to resonate, you know, to make a movie about extraordinary people doing extraordinary things is what people do, but to make movies about what ordinary people do and the sacrifices they make, we felt like, in this today now, is important to reveal. And that's in the process of archive and research... You know, it wasn't until 2003 did the police archives come available. And then that was a whole other revelation to us in our process. Because you suddenly... We knew there was an element of surveillance, and of course we had got under the skin of kind of the police interaction and the media element of um, the construction of the women being ignored and wanting the voice. But actually when it came to the realisation of surveillance photos and wanted photos, and in some respects, as both 
of of these women that it's some you know another mm-hmm. element became so relevant to us on our journey mm. and Tell yeah because it was just as we were reading so much you know there was so much in the news about surveillance there still mm. is it seemed mm. like an incredible aspect of it and also it showed what a threat they were mm. and visually actually for me and you it was, mm. of course you, as you've seen these pictures and we all know roughly you know people always say to me it's the black and black and white ladies right and the big hats <laughs> and actually when you look at them they look like us you know mm. they're not all collared and pinned up with big beautiful hats of course some of them are because that's the period but as with all periods everyone looks different and everyone's from the past and everyone's in the present in that moment and that was again what Sarah and I was a big influence was how modern these women really looked how they just looked like us mm. and particularly in those surveillance yes. photographs mm. when their hair is down and yes. uh, caught unawares mm. and their coats are open yes no I, I, it's exactly the kind of effect it made on me when I first saw them many years ago yeah so in terms of sources the, the, the women's library was an amazing um, reference for us well place to go to for us because there was something about holding or seeing objects as yeah. well that I think you know they took out the banners which are beautiful embroidered and they took out you know Emily Wilde and Davison's purse and seeing the ticket and you know seeing the um, hunger striking medals which you can't you know a number of people hold in private collections don't they as well but there's something about seeing all those objects and the photographs it's an enormous collection of photographs which are pretty amazing mm-hmm. um, so it was all that and then the Museum of London again you know we looked at lots of handwritten accounts I remember seeing Emily Wilde and Davison putting three exclamation marks in her prison accounts and I just thought that felt so contemporary and sort of extraordinary <laughs> yeah. and you know and all that and the police records and the prison records and you know it was all of that collectively and all the newspapers so looking through you know all the publications of the day built a picture of how they were reported and then looking through all the archive the, the cinema because of course it was the period of burgeoning cinema so it was exciting in that way and there and things were being captured and there were satires and you know yeah. so, also yeah. it was a rev- not a revelation but in that way that what was great for Sarah and I as well when we were going on the, or the team going on the journey to also meet people like Elizabeth yes. and academics mm. and archivists who yes utterly dedicated <laughs> to, you know, um, one, the suffragettes in themselves were very, um, they understood their value in regards to branding and archived themselves various different elements because they knew how important this movement was. But the dedication of all these people um, and the enthusiasm, you know, yes. to open a door and uh, have a phone call uh-huh. and you're, you know, the trepidation of sort of saying to Elizabeth, I, you know, I don't really know much, but can you speak to me about this thing? Because we're doing this thing, and you know, suddenly weeks later, you've got books and you've got pictures and you've got this, and there's even more information coming. You know, it's very inspiring. That yes, I feel like, like people an like army of people yeah. behind these, and people. they're like history books. You know, you just open them and talk to them. And there they are. <laughs> it's great. Nice to have the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, well, how, how did you actually come to have the definitive script? I mean, I gather it went through several... Torturous <laughs> process. <laughs> like pulling teeth, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was a long, long process. <laughs> we went down so many different routes, and it's amazing, because when you don't base something on a novel, and when there's such... You know, it was a 50... How long was the movement? It was over 50 years. Yes. It was, it was yes, well, I mean, it depends where you started from, yes, exactly. Well, yeah. Even yeah. from 1903. Exactly. Years, yeah. Even those yeah. years. It's long, and there are so many characters, mm-hmm. as we know from mm-hmm. Elizabeth Crawford's mm-hmm. brilliant biographer, biographical book. And so it was deciding the, the route in. And in the end, as you can see, we chose this 16-month period, 
and we chose, you know, Maud as our vehicle and a few characters. She's a composite character. She's based very close... Well, she's, she's drawn from a number of working women we read about, um, but, and, and so is Violet and so is Edith Ellen. Um, but, you know, we, we took a bit of artistic licence in terms of putting the pieces together in terms of the characterization to give us those, those phases, to give us a bit of freedom in terms of where we started and ended the story and creating an arc that was accessible. Um, we did have a draft of the script um, for the what, people who have seen the movie for Romola Garo's um, character who plays politician's wife at our first draft, in fact. And it's quite something to say that Abby Morgan, who is a prolific, amazing writer, extremely busy and very, very good at what she does, you know, she wrote this amazing script based on Romola's character being the lead and, um, and it was a politician's wife and it was actually a really beautiful script and it could have been a great movie but again back to my first point which was actually did this story in that moment feel like it resonated with the day and it actually didn't quite it was that the character of Maud, her maid in the film um, that actually suddenly felt more interesting she suddenly was the person that we wanted to know a little bit more about so we th- literally threw that script away and started again and put from Moore's perspective and obviously changed Moore's job and then still had Romola's character in Alice Walton in the film. So we did a good two years on <laughs> Romola's character. <Yeah. laughs> so we know her very well. We do, we do yeah, yeah. So when you were using researchers to, a researcher to work on the film, mm. did you send her off with specific things to find or did you give her free reign and then use whatever she came up with? A bit of both. I mean, we started homing in on areas, so we, you know, we wanted to know. And also, the good thing about making a film is nothing's wasted. So you don't only want to know things for the script, but then you want to know what the wallpaper was like, what mm. the hats they wore, whether they stuttered, whether, you know, you want to know everything. And so everything you can find out is useful for some department or another. So we had this friend um, that Faye had worked with called Joe Ferruja, who was really tenacious, and, you know, we'd send her off to the police archives, yeah. we'd send her off to the women's library we send her off to wherever or to look at newspapers or just to gather or to talk to academics or she was the first to approach you wasn't yeah, she yeah. Um, yeah we had different researchers along the way doing different things for us because so our first researcher Lucy we actually when we suddenly realised we had this we decided we want to make the film about suffragettes and we suddenly was like we need to do a degree in suffragettes in a space of like six months how yeah. is that possible so I was like who does those kind of things and we were like well Mike Lee right I mean who else do you call so I did loads of Googling on who works in Mike Lee and called loads of friends and found one of Mike Lee's researchers. She was brilliant, yeah. Who was amazing, and she'd researched Vera Drake for him and gone through the process, sort of, that we'd done. So we called Lucy, first of all, and Lucy, literally in our office, um, went off and then just made a very sort of primary school, which then turned <laughs> into a degree-level um, time, time scale of the whole movement and all the lead characters, you know, all the various different points, and then from there... She went off to do another job and we got more and more. So we, we sort of honed in the nearer and nearer we got to the story. Yes, because at first we were a bit obsessed with all the lead characters because there are some amazing stories mm. around mm. Constance Lytton and around... You know, there are fantastic stories. Yeah. 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 Annie Kenny and... Yeah. yeah. And uh, then moving on from the actual people to the locations, I mean, I thought that the 
whole effect of the film was so good. I loved the colour that you used, the greys, for most of the film, and then, of course, very bright at the end for Derby Day. Yeah. It was such a contrast. But what, what locations... I mean, we live in London. <laughs> yes. Tell us what locations uh, you used or mocked up for. I was remembering, amazing. actually, yesterday, as I was driving through London, that we spent our whole time going through London going... Oh, it's so annoying. They've regentrified that building. They've modernised that bit because if only we could just shoot a bit more because we yeah. wanted this kind of quite free reign. We wanted a 360 world where we could not just shoot that corner but we could have um, mm-hmm. more flexibility. And that was really hard in London. But we did end up shooting it all in London, pretty we much. Did. We did. As, as the irony, obviously, we went around the whole of the UK first <laughs> and then came Leeds, back to Birmingham. where we lived. Yeah, we, 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 went, we went everywhere. <laughs> no, because you never yeah, know. So, you, you know, know, it's always best to, you know. And it's just interesting the idea of recreating 1912 slums because the truth of the matter is, some of 1912 slums are now. Kira Knightley lives in there. Yeah. <laughs> that's true, she does. She lives literally on that road. And um, so, you know, your context of the modern audience of thinking about what houses are, uh, are slums and not. Um, and obviously a lot of it was destroyed in the war as well. So recreating that, and that's one of the reasons why we ended up going to Arnold Circus in Brick Lane, because um, we just felt like it had that... The idea that there was lots of people living under each other, and I think we mm. liked the idea of that... Um, Even though the Boundary Estate actually was built on top of the slums, considered quite good living, and only yes. was built in yeah. the early Indeed. 1910s. Yeah. So yeah. it was a slight cheat there, but we yeah. felt to the modern audience it spoke of it's sort of more work. confined yeah. living, yeah. And, you know, Sarah and I, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, we spent a bit, quite a bit of time, a couple of days actually at different points, sitting on the corner of Tattenham Corner in Epsom, just sitting there with no horses and nobody actually around, just sort of eating a sandwich and sitting there and watching and thinking and feeling the vastness and just sort of absorbing as much as possible. And actually what was interesting when we went to... It was Epsom, wasn't it? It must have been. Um, mm. And there was a little exhibition, oh, yeah, which yeah. we hadn't realised it was going to be there. Yeah. We were just sort of mooching about and just seeing what was around and trying to absorb that, the idea of what that place must look like with billions of people in. And um, we fell upon an exhibition and, in fact, some of... Some long-lost relatives were there, actually, of Emily's. And while there was a little book signing, and she'd written this great book, and it was brilliant. And then she started to tell us about her version of events and what she'd researched, and her family were there, and lots of insight into whether she was a romance, whether she was engaged. Lots of, you know, so all along the journey, whether we were looking for research or actually actively looking, we kept sort of finding these very great textures that might not be in the film, but you really sort of... Mm. And you also do realise, as I'm sure Elizabeth is better to talk about than us, but there's no single interpretation of anything. No, no, it's the famous return ticket. (laughs) Yes, exactly, that's an example that, you know, everybody bought a return ticket. And and in a way, I now feel like I've heard every version of every, you know, on a number of different issues, on how middle class it was, on whether Emily Warren Davidson was committing suicide, on whether the militants achieved anything, or the suffragists, you know. How it affected the Yes, whether the First World War mattered, whether, you know, there's so many different you can get someone to argue yeah. each every way yes well, um, well we're talking about Emily Davison where did you get that uh, archival film at the end I mean I've never seen the, the funeral yeah. it was absolutely fantastic though I've yeah. never seen that well that was a fake who yeah. well I can't really I mean I spent some money but um, no the, the truth of the matter is what we did is actually in the film that's sorry what's not in the film which we've cut but we so for research purposes we wanted to consume as much archive 
as we could to see the suffragettes and also see a lot of the anti-suffrage cartoons and things that were, were created at the time. So there was an element of just consuming everything that was on the internet and in any of the archives. And then we had an idea, obviously, to have something at the end of the film. And um, we got an archive specialist in called James Hunt, and um, he's worked on lots of, lots of films. And um, one day, while we were filming, actually, so we were already along the way filming, and he said to me, I found at the BFI there is some, some cans that say funeral. No one knows if there's actual funeral on there. It literally could be empty, could be ten frames, could be nothing. And it costs a lot, a lot of money to be developed because it's not just an easy process because, for various reasons, the way the old film was actually actually explosive. Mm. So also it could be explosive and not work. So, um, But we paid the money and what you see... So I can't guarantee no one's ever seen that before because none of us can. But nobody who is an expert in the field has ever seen it. So some of the close-up images, yeah, because yeah, yeah. some of the bigger ones people have seen, but yeah. not the, the yeah. So it was an amazing experience some because of the shots. it coincided with us when you're making a movie. It used to be that you'd go and watch the rushes every day on the big screen. Now, obviously, it doesn't work like that, and um, you probably only once or twice do your heads of department crew watch the rushes while you're shooting. Rushes are your daily footage. Oh yeah, that you've sorry, shot. yeah. yeah. And um, we just happened to, on that Thursday, plan for our heads of department because it's great for them to see. You know, normally when you're filming, you see on a little frame like this, you know, in a shrouded thing in the rain. So to see it on the big screen, you can start to get a sense of all your colours you're using, what's working, what's not, that kind of thing. And I got um, James, our archivist, to loop that footage. Then once we've had it, and I'd seen it literally on my laptop to loop it in so everyone could see it on the big screen because they hadn't seen it yet. And we all fell silent as we yeah, looked at this. Suddenly this realized, yeah, suddenly you know, we were sort of <laughs> recreating this thing and suddenly these real people were, like, <laughs> looking at us. And it was a... So it felt so powerful that we had to put it in the movie. Yeah, yeah. I was very impressed with that. And, I um, mean, that was also what I thought about some of the film. I mean, the, that it did look a bit like uh, news footage being shot. Uh, I mean, mm. can you be a bit technical? Y- yes, yes. So technical, we, we decided it was really Edu Grau, the cinematographer, who led this decision, but to shoot on Super 16, which is complicated. It's you know there aren't many labs left and everybody's moved to digital for good reasons really but but it was exciting to shoot again on film and it did give it that you know grainy uh, and we we stopped down and we drained of colour a little bit so it it gave it that sort of texture and um, and the production designer who was fantastic Alice Normington worked with the colour palette very specifically and we took our cue in away from the suffrage colours of purple white and green and then we also we we found some photos of women who were bruised um, modern day women who were bruised in in riots and also we were looking at we were talking about reading accounts of how the women were bruised from being force fed and bruised from being attacked and we suddenly realised that these colours of bruises were actually you've got purple green so it became our sort of colour palette and also flowers we had to find Anyway, these connections with all these colours. So um, it became our palette, and we, you know, uh, and then we, we wanted something very real. So, in terms of locations, apart from going to the Boundary Estate, we wanted to contrast the worlds of London. You know, you've got the beating heart of the establishment, and you've got the, um, the sort of grandeur of, of, of Regency London, and then you've also got the um, East London red brick. Um, textures and they're very different worlds and as we know there was a kind of almost class apartheid in those days and we wanted to reflect that. We were very lucky to get access to the Houses of Parliament um, the first ever film to be given access and that was really due to our 
partly the tenacity of our brilliant location manager, another woman on our team, we had many women, um, Harriet Lawrence, who went back and back. We told her to be suffragette about it and just keep asking them. And, um, and then um, also because the House of Parliament were considering opening themselves up to commercial filmmaking, so we were lucky in terms of timing. But, and then we went, put in our request to take in 300 supporting artists and horses and stunt people and stage an anti-government protest in the new yeah. palace yard. Yeah. And they agreed, which was, you know, it really felt like a marker of how we have progressed. <laughs> this institution that didn't let women in and women had to hide in broom cupboards. And <laughs> but, but so that was, that was good. Yeah. yeah. And it certainly makes a, a, a point, I mean, to see them walking through central lobby, I mean, you can, and how overpowering it all seems and these uh, poor women from the Mm. East End coming in. And I was just going to say, you do a bit of an anecdote, but the, um, I don't know if you know that Helen Bonham Carter, her great-grandfather, it was Asquith, or is Asquith, um, and he was our nemesis. (laughs) and in the film the Prime Minister exactly at our period yeah Yeah, and so when you know you can imagine when we um, sent her the script and she was I've worked with her before and she was like you do know the baddie in your film my great grandfather and I was like of course I do yeah that's why I I was a bit nervous about whether you even want to meet exactly yeah Um, but what was fantastic at the House of Parliament was um, having Helena there but also Helen Pankhurst who is Emmeline's great granddaughter sorry um, and both of them being outside the House of Parliament, about to start a riot, um, and having these this great conversation about you know. Helena went up to Helen Pankhurst and went, "I've just got to say sorry." <laughs> no, but it felt like a big moment. You know, you felt it like did, the establishment yeah. was acknowledging the history that was oppressed, and then you suddenly got these two beings who are extraordinary human beings in themselves from either side. Either the side, it was it was a really great thing. Yeah, it was good. And, I mean, there had actually been a riot in Palace Yard earlier on in mm. 1980, so I yes. mean, after that they'd been, suffragettes being banned been, from... Yes, the yes, so we were slightly but, slipping uh, yes, history it, there, but, but, yeah. You know, it was something that had happened. Yes, yeah. yes. And, uh, one thing that uh, I've uh, read is that in your research you went so far as to talk to a doctor who had studied forcible feeding and had actually been forcibly fed himself and what did he tell you about yes that was fascinating i mean the the accounts some of you may know but you know they're in the women's library i was just uh, you know the women's library collection even the digital online one has the most brilliant sylvia pankhurst um, account of being force fed which is so extraordinary and and visceral and, and shocking and so we did have quite a good idea of what it felt like for those women because they documented it in such detail but nevertheless when you stage something you know as a director you really have to kind of understand well did they hold here or did they put it with a nose or you know you have to really visualize everything you have to bring to life so we were sort of looking around and there was a um this doctor dr david nichols who um had done a lot of research and yeah he to understand it he'd been force fed himself so he came in and during the rehearsals and spent a, a session with Kerry Mulligan and me and him and then some stunt people because we wanted stunt people around her so that she could really fight because one of the things was that these women really fought back mm-hmm. and then you know she so she could really kick them and they knew how to take the kick and, um, and you know we talked about the pain we talked about the order of it and that was very very useful mm-hmm. to us to have his first hand account mm-hmm. of it yeah mm-hmm. and uh now that the film, your film, your baby, is out in the world, I mean, what yeah. have you thought of uh, the, the reception? Have you been pleased? Uh, well, it's been great here that so many people have been going to see it, Fantastic. and cross generations, and um, 
and also people have been tweeting that they'll never not vote again. Yeah, I mean, that's that the most important <laughs> thing for us. Yeah. We've been, we were campaigning and early in the year to get, um, I, I'm sure most of you know, but, you know, the, big, the largest proportion of people who don't vote in the UK, actually, are w- women between 18 and 25. It's a ridiculous number that don't vote. And so we were campaigning at the beginning of the year to register for vote, but I think hopefully next time round it will have a bigger effect. Yeah, and we're, tr- we're trying to do as much outreach as we can in schools and in groups. And, you know, and we're also... There's another sort of uh, line of narrative around this film, which is that there are so few women in film. There's like 1% to 10% of films directed by women each year. So, you know, 90% or plus of the films you see are through the male gaze. And, and mostly they do have fit women in them, as we know, but they have much less, many less women than are in the population and don't reflect the world we live in. And we're also very keen to campaign not only for women, women behind the camera but people from all backgrounds behind the camera because it is a white straight educated privileged world at the moment in terms of and you know and one of the issues that comes up in the states a lot and you may have encountered is diversity and a lot of questions around women of color in this movement um, which we did a huge amount of research about and also of course was a very very different picture in the states where there were many women of color in the movement, and you know, it, the immigration patterns were very different in the states, and they were very excluded. And some were included, some weren't, and it, there was a lot of prejudice and a lot of lasting wounds. And that's a really important conversation to have, particularly over there. But the general discourse around representation on camera is another narrative that's coming out of this film, and we kind of think it's good to provoke those discussions, and it's good to have discussions about inequality and all sorts of levels, not just gender inequality, Mm. sexual inequality. Yeah, I mean, we hope, like I said at the beginning, you know, our film is about two square mile in 1912, about these people that did this thing, but our major hope is, we hope what we've done is told the micro to, to, to live the macro, you know, that everybody can take something from this story and basically also be inspired to do whatever you want to do, never take no for an answer. And, um, you know... Challenge. To, to challenge, yeah. And it's important that... And also to believe that you're allowed a voice and you should have a voice. It's a very big... Don't get me on it, I'll be here for hours. <laughs> um, disconnect between government and reality in some respects at the moment. And we all know all the, the things that have gone on the last few, a few months and mm. opinion polls and things. And, you know... That's sort of an element of what this film's about too. It's about going, you know, I am actually deserve a voice, but to have a voice, you need to vote. You know, you do need to be in the game. So we hope that that's what everyone takes from it. And uh, I mean, sort of following on from that, I mean, was it difficult to raise money to to make the film? Um, mm. It was. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. People keep saying, I, I can tell people want me to say oh, it was because it was about women. It was probably very hard. And we had to sell it as a kick-ass movie with yeah. explosions. Yeah, we the did. And we did. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely had to do that. I mean, all films genuinely are really hard to raise money on. You know, um, I do think movies about women are a lot harder. And um, also, to be honest, women movies about minorities are very hard, much harder because people not enough people go to the cinema to see them is the truth. And one of our biggest bugbears and any budding writers out there, I, you know, please, please, if you want to become a, a critic. Because what we find is, you know, Sarah and I make many films. You know, we made a, our first film was Brick Lane, based on the Monica Lee novel. And what was interesting with that film was, don't get me wrong, I mean, some people might not have liked it, but it was pretty exclusively um, critiqued by and reviewed by men. And the movie, on the whole, wasn't predominantly for men. 
so you know you have that thing where at the moment there's not enough in America or the UK female critics and I think that's really important because they're the ones that sort of in some respects allow the voice to the audience so um, and not enough diversity in that world either yeah Yeah, although the male critics uh, and film critics uh, were overwhelmingly uh, positive uh, positive. yeah yeah Yeah. 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 so we've come round to them yeah (laughs) (laughs) we like them now (laughs) (laughs) right well on that note shall we open uh, questions to the floor so uh, if anybody has a question put it now um Thanks a lot for coming. Um, my name is Alejandro Arellano. I'm here uh, studying a Master of Laws. I watched the film, and I think it, it was brilliant. It, you really portray the struggle women go through, sacrificing their families, sacrificing their sons, daughters, in order to mm. fight for their rights. Um, about what you were talking, there were, uh, the, only, the reviews were great of the film. Uh, however, there were many voices. It was in The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Metro, talking about this, um, how the movie, uh, being as brilliant as it was, it did not reflect the, the real uh, population of that time or how the suffragette movie, movement was formed racially. Mm. Uh, they speak about, for example, uh, a in an important part of Indian women who weren't considered in the film. I know that when making a film, it's, it's difficult you know, to, to try to put up all these different stories together. You, you need to focus, and as you said, you, you chose to, to portray the, the life of a, 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 a person that didn't actually exist, you know, just to show like this ordinary woman. But my question is... Uh, when making the film, the script, everything, did you did you came across this these things, these different kind of women, and was it like deliberate, just choosing these white middle class women, or was it just an accident? And now all these critics are. Mm. Well, the first film that we made was Brick Lane, which didn't have a single white cast member in it, and the protagonist was a woman of colour. So we're very aware, you know, we, our aim is to put people you don't normally see on screen on screen. What we did here was put working class women on screen, not middle class. Um, but it's a protagonist. And the truth is, as Elizabeth can back up, that we, were, we, we didn't have a... Um, the, immigra- the brilliantly diverse Britain we have today came about through the First Second World War and primarily through the 1950s and beyond. And there, there were tiny pockets of immigrants. If you look through the movement, if you look, we interrogated all the evidence, there were two women of colour who were prominent, Sophia Dulip Singh, who was an aristocrat princess, Sophia Dulip Singh, who was the goddaughter of Queen Victoria, Bukhaji Kama, and they were both aristocratic. And then there was one photograph of a contingent of Indian women in 1911 before our story began, because there were many women in India fighting, and they were... Um, and they were, in the, they were in this one procession. But there weren't, as we can find, there weren't any other women of colour in the movement. That was only because in Britain at the time we didn't have immigration. In America, there were many, many women of colour. So if you made a story of the American movement, if you made a story of India, you would put those people in. So we weren't, 
leaving them out. We were just reflecting the story at the time. But as Faye said, it's a story about a tiny, tiny group of people. And, um, you know, we showed it the other day. We had a whole group come from the Mulberry School, a whole group of Bangladeshi 16-year-old girls, and they all stood up at the end and said it spoke to them and inspired them. They were excited, you know... Brick Lane reached people in Spain. You know, you, you, you make films to translate across cultures, across, across people from different backgrounds to speak to people, and that was the idea of this. I'm horrified that people think we've cut that out. We are feminist filmmakers who believe in representing diversity, and it's awful that the one film that's doing that gets targeted. It's just so depressing, I can't tell you, and it keeps me awake at night, and I don't know what to do about well, it. it's targeted. I mean, it is ignorance yeah. because, I mean, I've studied this for over 20 years and I've never yet found, I mean, what we would say, a black woman, Afro-Caribbean woman, I've not found one. No. Only because, not because they, later in the century, there were many women of colour who were prominent in movements. Of course there were, in Britain, but not at that time, only because they weren't here. There were tiny pockets, but tiny, you know. Mm. I think just to add, you know, with, with people... You know, Sarah gets emotional about it because you can imagine what's seemingly happening to the narrative of the film is it's sort of, you know, we, in some respects, our voices now are being stopped. And what we're, we're the only movie out there at the moment that is trying to speak in this way to people and inspire people. And actually, we feel like there's another force going on which is trying to suppress our voice in that way. And you can see that the movie was there to, mm. to empower people. It's not, and, and I feel like that narrative definitely is, is squashing us and making people not go to cinema to see it because we are being vindicated being racist. And I think in America, yeah, you know, and when you see the film, it's totally the opposite. Yeah, and you get young white people saying, "I'm not going to see it," you know, and you think, "Well, that's interesting," but you know, then we can't have the conversation, and I don't know. I, I but I nevertheless, I think it's a vital conversation yeah. to have around representation. I just don't want it to divert from a, you know, to, to overtake a narrative and to stop people engaging, because that's, that's not the way forward, I, I, yeah. H- have we convinced you, the audience? <laughs> I'm sure no. Convinced? I see they're shaking their heads. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Saloni. I'm a student at the Gender Institute here at the LSE. First off, thank you so much for the movie. Uh, I have two questions, if that's okay. One, I want to know that for Maud, before she became a main participant in the movement, she had this acceptance of her given status as a woman. I want to know where you drew on for that, uh, to show that. And B, how much of the movie is fictionalized? Well, Maud is this composite character, so she's, you know, drawn from different sources. But, I mean, there are, in a way, what's fictionalized? I mean... There's, there's not that much. It, it, you know, the, the riot outside Parliament is based on Black Friday. The testimonies were given. The derby really happened. The breaking of the windows on Oxford Street happened. There were women in laundries who got involved in the movement. That, you know, there's a lot of... Yeah. yeah. It's sort of... It's based on fact, but uh, yes, fictional yeah. characters. In yes, in terms of kind of... Yeah. 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 I mean, there was a woman called Hannah Mitchell, but as you can imagine, ordinary women, working class women, not all of them were educated, so the, even the ones that were vaguely even educated, I forget what the school schooling was, but it wasn't, 
You did have part-time school. You did part-time time, school. Yeah, yeah. But you can imagine they didn't mm. keep diaries, so it was very hard to comp- only stay on one person because you didn't really feel like you Although had... Although Hannah wrote a great book. Yeah, Hannah was. It was a great book, yeah. actually. It really is. Of yeah. course, there was Annie Kenny, who uh, yeah. was one of the leaders and was uh, yeah. working yeah. class. But, I mean, they were exceptional in many ways. It's the, mm. um, the norm was mm. to... Uh, um, not to not to write uh, diaries or memoirs. Yes, if you were so you working have to get it. into their lives. I mean, you, from other um, mm-hmm. stories of working class women. Um, but so modern modern historians have really done that, haven't yes, they? That, yeah. that there's a whole sort of new wave of historians who have accessed the working class women and found those accounts. Yeah, I mean, we always love the idea. It sort of came in early on the idea that you have one woman walking into a moment of history. The idea that she sees, you know, she she sees Emmeline Pankhurst, she sees Lloyd George, she's part of those big sort um, moments in the suffrage history, and I thought that was really exciting. Mm. And there were women like that. I mean, not necessarily working class. I mean, I do have a diary of a, a middle class woman, and she was always there on the big occasion. She was watching um, good on uh, Black Friday, um, for instance, and she was followed Emily. Uh, Wilding Davison's funeral and all these occasions. So that, I mean, she was just obviously one, but there were so many people who did want to be there. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was all so much more theatrical than the mm. sort of street theatre that we have yeah. now. So people yeah. did go along. Mm. So we've got the next one. I, I thought it was a brilliant film, and I'm afraid this is going to seem like a very obvious question but where was Sylvia Pankhurst this was her patch this was her bit of London at the East End mm. she had a huge influence and yet I think except for a very brief mention yeah, she either. wasn't there at all mm. and I also want to ask where were the suffragists mm. that this the, the votes for women was a mm. two strand fight but mm. battle. It was, mm-hmm. it was the, with the militants and the constitutionalists. Mm-hmm. And we don't, although I've been looking at pictures, no, not mm-hmm. there, there have been uh, pictures of Millicent Fawcett. You've been showing pictures of Millicent Fawcett. Mm-hmm. There was, I, as far as I could see, there it wasn't was a mention of the fact that there was another side mm-hmm. um, of the suffrage movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's called Suffragette, and it's just about that one group. Um, it's not about, and, you know, hopefully there will be many, I mean, there's been many, many films made about so many things. There's three films being made about the Boston bombings and millions of films. You know, there's going to be a film made about Sophia Dulip Singh. There will be many more films and hopefully someone will make a film about the peaceful suffragists and, and the conflict and, you know, shoulder to shoulder dealt with that much more. Um, and, you know, obviously those, there were many schisms in the movement over whether militant tactics were right and, you know, there, there's a whole story to be told about the peaceful suffragists. We, but we decided that we would, you know, you can't do everything in a narrative film. And there's so many omissions in this film. You know, we didn't look at the regions where there was a huge campaign we waged. We didn't, you know, so many things we haven't included because you can't. And, and what we decided to do was focus on this group that had been driven towards violence, actually, surprisingly, it's lesser known. I mean, people know about the chaining, and they know about Emily Wilding Davison, but they really, really don't know about people going to prison and being force-fed. And, and it seemed to kind of... It, it seemed to, the journey towards activism and what pushes people to those extremes seemed to really resonate with um, a lot of what's going on in the world today. It doesn't mean it's the whole picture. It's by no means the whole picture. And Sylvia... 
Again, we decided not to bring in all the um, characters and the Pankhurst, and the, apart from this one moment with Emmeline, because we just we wanted to steer away and really keep us focused on the working women. But that doesn't mean it will work for everybody. I mean, Helen, interestingly, who is the granddaughter of Sylvia, um, was very keen on the way we did it and said Sylvia would be proud of you because she wouldn't want to be in it. She'd want to look through the eyes of a working woman, you know. But that won't work, please everybody. And I know, I mean, actually, we did meet a few Sylvia biographers in. Um, along our tour and surprisingly they've let us get away with it. I did have Sylvia guilt for a long time and we did um, think about making a film just about Sylvia. I mean I would like to make a film about the lesbians in the movement. About, there are so many brilliant stories and I've met so many fantastic people and, and I hope and I hope people will make many 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 stories not just about these women but about women around them. There need to be. And you know people won't make them if they don't get seen. And, you know, to be honest, it's so much easier to make a romantic comedy. But, um, and, but, but and, and, and it's amazing how difficult it is to make a film, firstly to finance it, and then to get it received in the world if it's got anything to say. And that's why most people don't make those films, because, my God, you get a hard ride. Yes, well, but, and, and you mostly get a hard ride about what you omit. But I kind of think you have to kind of make those decisions and just live, stand by them. Yes, if you'd listen okay. to all the academic voices before you started, yeah. from all the different viewpoints, yes, you'd you never get going at all, I think. No, yeah. well, you'd have to do a very extensive TV series, which I yeah. also think someone yeah. should do, you know. I mean, Shoulder to Shoulder was obviously brilliant, but yeah. we need a new version of it. Yeah. 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 You've got to go and pick your kids up. Yeah. I've got to go and pick up my kids because I'm a woman with children. <laughs> and I also think that we need to acknowledge that too, actually, in the whole debate about working women, you know that it's hard <laughs> but I'm very grateful to your coming well, thank you very much thank you. Sarah. thanks Sarah. yes one more yes yeah. Hi. Um, I'm Sinead Weir I'm the manager of the Women's Library Reading Room at the LSE Library and you have touched on this a couple of times, and I know that it is, um, your film is um, portraying a microcosm of the movement, as you mm -hmm. said, and it's a movement I consider myself to be part of as a sort of <laughs> few generations down. But I was wondering about the, um, I don't know if the film's been released in America yet, because I know that they have such a proud um, history of their own, yeah. and part of the context of the Women's Library collection coming here was that, there was a worry that American collectors could possibly swoop in and, um, you know, sort of get some of the collection if it was broken up. But how is, um, how do you see this, how is the, the film being received in America? Is it seen as a, a kind of side story to their own history or is it adding to their debate? Or do you, did you go into it knowing that you know, it might be received differently there to here. Yeah, we always knew. I mean, the fact is, is if you make a British film about something British, you know, in some respects you're making it, you're not making it solely for your territory, but that's going to be your, your maximum territory, well, hopefully. Um, and, you know, the Americans, the people, the people who see it, they love it, actually. They really, you know, it's like anything. It's like they take, they take from it... The, the broader spectrum of what we were trying to achieve. Is it breaking as barriers like it does here? No, it's not, but it's because that place is absolutely vast and, um, you know, it's a much different structure in the way that films are rolled out here. 
you kind of bang in your first two weeks in theory and then you see how it goes there you start literally on five screens in New York and then you go and grow and you go to 200 and if you're really lucky you go to 500 when people see it they absolutely love it how to get people to actually physically go and see it it's a whole different matter I mean all of us have been in the US for pretty much six or seven weeks We've done a billion Q&As and, and things, and it's still not quite driving the audience as much as we wanted. I think maybe because also they do have their own movement. And interestingly, if they don't have the term suffragette, you know, and we consciously... In fact, Meryl questioned, um, while, you know, Meryl's amazing, she's such a huge supporter of suffrage generally anyway, but for our movie, you know, apparently she invested her um, fee on Iron Lady to the Suffrage Museum in Chicago, I think, or maybe Washington, I forget where it's at. And, you know, she was the last piece of the puzzle. You know, we, we needed an icon to play an icon, so people understood how amazing this woman was and what force she had and, of course, what other human being pretty much can do that if the first person you ask is Meryl Streep. And, you know, the irony of it is I could have asked her pretty much from the moment Abby started writing... And she would have said yes, but at that point I didn't know. As a producer, I thought, well, you know, I'll ask her really last because then she knows my film's happening. I've got this powerhouse cast you can't say no to, not just me. And um, she said yes. Um, but so she's quite part of that American thing. And she did say, you know, is it too brave to call your film suffragette? Because people in America just have no idea about it. We've, we felt empowered by the idea that if they don't know, they should know. Um, and that's sort of our tactic. Whether that was the right one or not, I don't know yet. <laughs> okay. Um, it's just a question, because you mentioned two different uh, productions, right? The Brick Lane and the Suffragette. Why one, you do address uh, people of color, and another one, it's pretty much um, a white women's movement. Why one got a global distribution, and the other one didn't, if I'm not mistaken, but... Um, For example, I come did. from Brazil, and I, did, I have never heard about the first one. But Suffragette is, like, everywhere yeah. in Brazil. So do you have any um, comments on that? Do you think that it's more challenging when you're addressing um, people of color in a movie to distribute that? or? No, not so much. I think it's just it's about time. It's about moment. It's about what seems to be fashionable, you know. Um, and that's not why we make them, but we, you know, you build a certain level of finding the right moment for something. Brick Lane was internationally released. I don't know whether it went to Brazil or not. I don't know, but it, it pretty much we, Sarah travelled the world with it while she was about eight months pregnant. Actually, um, since then, I've made a movie. I've made a TV series called Dancing on the Edge about a black jazz band in London in the 1920s with Stephen Polyakov. Um, we also, I've made a, um, a three-parter called Small Island based on the Andrew Levy novel about the Windrush in the 1950s. You know, films, less films are made, of course, of women, of people of colour, but also actually of any, um, of any people that don't quite have that strong voice is the truth. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is cinema at the moment are what they call quadrant movies, where it's for all families Um, and it's either animation or it's um, superheroes. I mean, that's, and that's why one of our things is we want to drive people to the cinema to make 
you know, so you see like an art form that is actually attracting an audience. That's really important for us. Pathé, in fact, who are our backers in the UK and internationally, you know, you see the kind of movies they make are amazing. You know, they made Philomena, they made The Queen, they made Selma, they made Nelson Mandela movie. You know, you can see that they are trying to break that maybe Hollywood um, quadrant battle we all or live in the art form but you know we're really privileged the fact is is that we are able to make an art form that you don't have to go to an exhibition in the middle of New York and queue for or you know you can actually just go around the corner and buy a ticket and hopefully spread a message of some kind to either inspire or to empower and that's our ultimate hope. lecture will be coming in very shortly um, it's my great pleasure to thank you very much for coming in um, and speaking to us um, I think you've done something very important in making this film and I think the message from the questions is we need more films like this there are lots more stories to tell and you can't tell lots and lots of stories all in one film, we just need more films so uh, all power to your elbow uh, we look forward to the next one and uh, hope you'll come back and speak to us again Great. so thank you very much <laughs>